0: Okay, all
1: right. <laughs> so my very special guest today is Anna summers Cox, OBE. And um, a little bit about her, following her curatorial work uh, at the uh, Victorian Albert Museum, Anna became an investigative art world journalist and uh, founded was the founding editor of the uh, English version of the art newspaper in 1990. And Anna, I know is a diehard Italophile, Uh, kind of like I'd like to be, Um, and uh, is now a fellow of the Venetian Academy of Arts and Sciences. Uh, So, Anna, just to start with, I wonder whether you could let us know your uh, favourite city and your reasons for that.
0: Well, it has to be Venice, doesn't it? Um, uh, The most beautiful city in the world, the most extraordinary city in the world, and one that I went to as a child. Um, And it's not true that children don't react to beauty around them. I was seven years old and I was completely knocked out by how splendid it was.
1: And we'll talk more about Venice later on in the light particularly in the light of um, of, of, of 26 um and and do you have a favorite rural location it, it, it could be it could be a beach but it could be a rural location.
0: No, it's Cumbria. It's absolutely wonderful. Place.
1: The Lake District, other, other, yeah. otherwise well, if
0: even even further north. I mean, oh. if we, yeah, imagine the Lake District. Uh, I like the sublime. I like things to be slightly austere, which is why I also like the 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 southern Tuscany, the Creti Senese, um, which are quite almost bleak. Um, and if it didn't rain so much the whole time, I would probably go and live in Cumbria. <laughs>
1: Yes, although I've heard that particularly during the pandemic, with the rush to the countryside, it's got quite crowded and spoilt recently.
0: I think it's all relative. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) Yes. Um,
1: Yeah. Yeah, I... I, used to visit the Lake District a lot, and I did the Coast to Coast Walk, from, um, which goes across Helvellyn, uh, and, and, uh, and on Striding Edge, and then across the Moors and Dales. Um, and um, do you have a favourite building? And you, you might have two, you might have like a contemporary building, uh, and maybe an older building.
0: Gosh, favorite building. Um,
1: As a piece of architecture.
0: Yeah, Mies van der Rohe's um, um, uh, uh, World Exhibition building is so elegant. And I I like it because it's what modernist architecture ought to be, because the proportions are absolutely perfect. Uh, And um, unfortunately, very few architects get. That right, because if you strip away all 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 decoration, uh, it all it's all in the lines and the proportions. Uh, so I think I would say that one. Go and study it, everybody. Go and work out why it's perfect. I think Pythagoras, you know, with the numbers, would have would maybe come up with some philosophy about why it's wonderful. Um, there's that. Well, old buildings, gosh, old buildings. What do I like very very much? Well, um, I walked the Camino de Santiago um, in 2019, and Leon Cathedral is a a French cathedral, absolutely exquisite, with all its window glass intact, but one-third smaller. It's like being inside uh, an enamelled um, jewel of the 14th century. Uh, It's absolutely beautiful.
1: And and, and is that, am I mistaken, is that the the famous Santiago pilgrim route, or is it... Mm. Yes,
0: it is. Um, it is. I, I walked. I walked from the Pyrenees to Santiago. Uh, yeah. It took a month, and it's seven hundred and sixty kilometers.
1: And do you recommend other people to do it at some point in their lives?
0: Yes, yes, uh, absolutely. It's a, it's it's when you find out um the you find out the relationship again between the human being and the land because you're walking it um there's nothing between you and and that and you sense the distances you realize why villages are the distance apart that they are um you tire yourself out in a kind of um happy way and um you quite often quite blank you know you're sort of wandering along and saying oh Oh, there's some butter carbs or you know, uh, it's that kind of slowing down. Um, I also I'm also a practicing Catholic, so I took part in, in, in the masses, um, which are celebrated every evening on the various stages as you go along. And then you arrive in Santiago, and this is this great um cathedral with um with with where they swing the, the the incense. Above all, there's a sense of achievement, a wonderful sense of achievement. Everybody, everybody um is rejoicing. That those who've made it and and even the blisters are worth it
1: it's an old friend of mine did it um i think soon after her husband who was also an old friend uh cambridge anthropologist and she she did it with her their son and she wrote a blog about it with lovely photographs and it is just fascinating to read the spiritual journey that and the kind of healing journey that she was on it's something that i'd really like to do myself one day mm. well,
0: very- uh, it's quite interesting you meet you meet people doing it for the third, fourth, fifth really? time, yeah, and uh, particularly men. Mm. Um, I think men find it a great release. Uh, women can actually chat about themselves to other women. Men aren't so good at it, and somehow the anon- anonymity of um, the friendships you make there, which are will last for an evening, uh, people people don't tell lies. They don't tell you everything about themselves, but on the whole, they speak honestly about why they're doing it. And then they talk about their feet. Um, but 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 um there is um a sense that you have paired away the rubbish from your life.
1: It sounds sounds absolutely wonderful. And you you said that you're a practicing Catholic. Have you were you born a Catholic, Hannah?
0: Yes. Um my Hmm. great-grandfather was a friend of John Henry Newman. Um, and became a Catholic when um, when um, Newman became a Catholic, much to the disgust of the family because uh, the family has always been very Whig, i.e., anti-Catholic. Um, in fact, they were even involved in getting rid of James II. But this,
1: um, this, is the, this is the Newman of Elgar's Dream of Gerontius.
0: That is the very same. Yes, 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 and Lead right. Kindly Light,
1: um, all those things, all those beautiful things. Yes. Um, and and and. Apropos which, do you have a favourite piece of music? Maybe it could be contemporary uh, or it could be uh, and or classical music.
0: You know, I was asked that question when I was at school and I said Britain's War Requiem. I can't believe that when I was 13, I really thought that was my favourite bit of music, but I I still think it's exceedingly fine. Um, But I would say anything by Bach, just about. I mean, Bach is is top, top, top for me.
1: Um, Do you remember a few years ago at Christmas, they played the entire... Bark corpus on Radio Three. I don't know if you remember that. We just had it on throughout the house over Christmas. It was absolutely that, wonderful.
0: That was Harvard, wasn't it? I, I think it, it was it. It was Radio Three, was it? Yeah. I thought it was a project done, or maybe maybe Harvard did it and Radio Three transmitted it. But I was so oh. I yeah, and I sent I sent a link of it down to um, Zaki Nosebe, who's sort of the leading intellectual of the United Arab Emirates, because he's also um, a Bach um, enthusiast.
1: And there was all, talking about walking. There was all there was also a, I think it was a Radio Three series of episodes of someone actually following in the footsteps of Bach, the way he walked down through Germany. Uh, he was a you know he's one of these many artists love walking as you know they uh, and they create while they're on their walks and it, it, there's a beautiful um sort of series of episodes about arts walks
0: <laughs> yes well walking walking does connect you with the past if you cho- if you, and that's why walking with a purpose you know you know you're going from a to b for for a reason um and to, to know that somebody sublime like bach has done it of course is
1: following in That's, the book yeah. Yeah, exactly. oh, yeah I've done it with Gustav Mahler in the in the Alps at you know the Austrian Alps and so on so okay. um and and um so thinking about uh your 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 life Anna, um, can you remember it's a kind of corny question really but can you remember how you first encountered art and what sort of age you were
0: I must have been about six or seven. And my father, um, who was the Consul General in Munich at the time, really liked Baroque. So Mm -hmm. every Sunday um, uh, we used to get into the car after mass and we would drive to see some Baroque monastery or church. And I would be car sick and I absolutely (laughs) hated it. But what I saw stuck in my mind and I left me with a sense of incredible refinement of Bavarian Rococo, And years later, when I became an artist historian, I realized that I had not forgotten, I had not forgotten the colors, I had not forgotten the way in which things were put together. And then when I was about eight, there was an exhibition of Chagall in Munich. And I absolutely loved Chagall because Chagall painted pictures like mine. (laughs) Uh, That that was how I saw it. Uh, So those were my first encounters
1: and did when you first saw chagall had you seen his work before or did you just suddenly think oh he 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 looks his work looks like mine
0: when you're eight you haven't seen anything before Absolutely. everything is everything is new
1: yes i often say to my my much younger students that you imagine what it's like in a world without the internet and you've only got library books and you live like in a a, a, a provincial town outside of london and there's a little library you know uh you you're lucky if you find a book any book about art in the library but you know to investigate someone like andy warhol is just impossible unless you start going to the galleries and there wasn't that much on display in those days and now of course you can find any work of art just a click of, a, of, of, the, of the mouse
0: Yes, but 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 I, it's, it's, I do wonder whether we aren't bombarding our eyes too much. I once rather rashly said I'd be a judge in an International Photography Prize, and by the time I'd looked at 2,000 images, I thought I was damaging my brain. I really yeah. did. I, I thought I'm never going to do that again.
1: Yeah, I'm um, a judge on the emerging artist panel in London, and every year we have to look through on the computer, we have to scroll through 2,000 entries, And you kind of, it's quite interesting because you get used to, you do see things that suddenly stand out, uh, but it's not a nice thing to have to do, really. Um, And um, could you say something about your education, your your educational studies at uh, degree level, Anna?
0: Right. I was at Oxford and I, uh, in those days you couldn't study in art art history. I don't think I would have done anyway because there was a feeling that art history was something you studied after you'd already learned something. So you either, you know, had a degree in languages or in history or something, so you could bring something to the table. But I could do a special subject in Burgundian miniature painting because there was a great, very great scholar called Robert de Lisse, who was temporarily at All Souls College. And um, so there we were looking at uh, 15th century miniatures and leading on to Van Roger van der Weyden and Van Eyck. And he would not allow us to come up with a single theory about anything or indeed an iconographic interpretation. He said, you guys don't know enough. I want you just to look at an image. I'll give you an image. And next week in your essay, you would have told us, told, you will tell us what you have seen in that image. So he taught us to look. And very g- gently then led us into some main themes of what was in the minds of the artists at the time. I've never forgotten that. Start so- with learning to look.
1: Sounds like a tremendous way of teaching, actually. I always tell my students, forget labels, look at the work for a long time and, uh, you, 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 you know, work out what you think about it, because they're also studying financial value. I'd say start guessing what the estimate might be and you'll be what you'll probably be wildly out to start with. But over the year, that's the only way you can train yourself, train your eye and also train your understanding of cultural and financial value. And and then once you left Oxford, uh, did you go straight into like an art world job?
0: No, I went to the Courtauld. I did my MA there um, in um, Gothic architecture, and then wrote my special my essay on uh, on the influence of printing on. Venetian painting um, it wasn't a very good one I wasn't very original but I did look I looked at an awful lot of printed books early printed books um, and that was introduced me to a new area um, then when I was 23 I got an assistant keeper job which was a, a sort of sort of a rank job uh, at the v at a time when there were only five applicants for the job isn't that extraordinary now there would have been 500 or maybe a thousand mm-hmm. and um, it just wasn't fashionable to be a museum curator and I learned, I began to learn, really learn, because I was learning from objects, things you held in your hand that you stared at until you thought your eyes were watering. And, um, and it was only after you'd gone beyond that phase, where I can't look at something anymore that you actually began to see. And and what was so useful in those days was that there were people who already knew who taught you how to do it. The apostolic succession was um, was was vital to the teaching. So you, when people said, "Oh God, what well, you guys were just connoisseurs," well, that, not just connoisseurs. Actually, to know what an object is, you have to kn- know how to look at it in a in a certain way. And um, shortly afterwards. Academic art history went off in a completely different direction. We had the, you know, French philosophers and so on, mm-hmm. and Connoisseurship became deeply unfashionable, considered very provincial, very boring. Uh, um, and um, there was a risk that actually that, that, that this would get downplayed, and that you wouldn't actually want to have, you wouldn't need to have specialists in the various areas. And there was a time at the VNA by. Five years ago, when they weren't replacing quite a lot of the jobs, because they felt, oh well, that's okay. And I asked the head of um, collections. I said, "Well, what are you going to do about the fact you don't have, have anybody who knows about 18th century French porcelain?" He said, "Oh, well, they can get in touch with the previous keeper." I said, "But well, when when he's dead, you mm. know, what you, what then? You know." Um, but I think there is an understanding now that uh, that that um, to. To write good theory about art, you actually have to know what you're writing about. So if you um, have never actually mastered what the thing is, or if somebody else hasn't really mastered it and you can read about it, then you're probably going to write rubbish. So the two, things, the two disciplines are joining up again, which is good because just um, studying what an object is and p- putting it in its place in the great order of things is quite dull unless you actually explain more about it. And I think the v is exemplary in that now because uh, they, when they redisplayed their medieval and Renaissance galleries a few years ago, uh, they realised that 80% of the art was religious and most people aren't religious anymore and a lot of people don't know anything about it. A uh, lot of people don't come from the Christian tradition anyway. So they worked with focus groups and, you know, put a Madonna in front of, um, you know... Um, uh, somebody who's normally Christian, somebody who's a-religious, Muslim, Hindu, and so on. And in front of each one, they said, what is this? And found out what people didn't know. And then they wrote their labels to to compensate for what people know. So obviously not every label says Madonna, you know, considered in the Christian tradition to be the mother of Jesus Christ, who is considered to be uh, man and God. But somewhere that is written so that you can actually... um, You can actually uh, learn it. And they went to a Hindu temple up on the North Circular Road in order to find out what not knowing something felt like. uh, To experience experience total ignorance.
1: And what I find is, I've got very international group of students. And, uh, you know, it's not uh, often the Chinese students know more about the Christian religious objects because they've they've become active Christians, a lot of them. And and, uh, conversely, a lot of my kind of like Western (laughs) students who are brought up in Christianity, they just don't know the stories. Uh, And and, and also, you know, I studied classics and, you know, very few people now understand the classical myths either. So one of the first things I say is just get an encyclopedia of, Greek mythology, and you know, don't don't necessarily read the Bible, but you know, get a book about the main Bible stories. Uh, it's incredible the, lack the the way we've begun to lack knowledge, and it, it, I think you still need it, even if you're looking at contemporary art. There's a lot of contemporary artists today, quite well-known ones, who still reference, I think, both mythology and and the Christian religion and religions.
0: Yes, sometimes in a rather annoying way, it's as though they've just suddenly read a story and think, oh, that's rather a good one. I think I'll, and I hitched my ride on that one. Um, uh, I don't, sometimes it's not very, it's not terribly, terribly deep. I, I've always felt that Anselm Kiefer does that to some extent. Um, uh, and people say very deep, very deep. Mm. And I should never forget the label of uh, the Tate uh, of a psychomaly. It had the word Virgil written in the yeah. corner. And it said it said, in that one word is summed up the whole glory of the culture of, of classical classical um, antiquity, and I thought, no, it's not. it really isn't. I mean that's not quite that's not good enough um so so there's one should one shouldn't let people um as i say uh, ex- exploit the depths of the past when we, I write. yeah,
1: so yeah so so knowledge is and connoisseurship is also interesting in in relation to. Current interest in authenticity, um, where, where you know, you remember the National Gallery Exhibition, I don't know what you thought about it, where they called fakes and forgeries, where they were looking at where we were with science and what place connoisseurship still had, uh, you know, in, in understanding works of art. Uh, it seems to be quite a balanced thing now that you you can't just get away with science, you've actually got to be a connoisseur at the same time. Do you agree with that? Yeah.
0: I, well, I do, but try uh, as words are loaded, aren't they? Connoisseur has elitist, yeah. um, you know, and a little kind of sort of uh, aesthetic, oh, too. Aesthetic, you know, uh, it's, it's it's not. It's, it's the art of of learning learning how to look and memorizing. I mean, it's it's the, the magical thing that wine experts do that they've tasted a great deal of wine and remembered what it tastes like. So yeah. they 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 not only knows what know, know what's good, but they know what's what. Mm. Um, that is equivalent
1: and even in the nineteenth century Gi- giuseppe morelli uh he you know he 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 comes up with these wonderful statements saying uh, forget theory, forget theoretical books on arts, you've got to actually just look uh that the books are just useless you know and I, that's that's written like one hundred and fifty years ago It's so kind of modern, I think that sentiment, and it's so it's basically supporting the the notion of um connoisseurship um the after, so after that did you so you you then worked at the vNA and then, did
0: you work at the British Museum for some time? I can't. No, no. I I, I was at the V&A for thirteen years, and I thought um, towards the sort of tenth year, um, I, I I need to do something different. So I I moved from metalwork where I was an expert in uh, the medieval liturgical things and Renaissance jewels. And I did an exhibition of Renaissance jewels mm-hmm. and paintings. I um I transferred to ceramics and uh, pronounced ceramics mm-hmm. in the proper Greek way, and did that for a bit. And then I thought really. Um, Actually, because I did think that studying things in a positive, pos- just positivistic connoisseur like way wasn't enough, and I didn't have the calling to spend my life doing it, I I left and I became the editor of Apollo magazine. And when I after about six months, I realized that Apollo had really lost its constituency. There wasn't a kind of general reader on on art at that level anymore. Um art writing, art history writing, or art, become specialists. So there was contemporary art, there was um, you know, print quarterly, master drawings, you know. Um it had become for scholars. Um and then one day this newspaper arrived on my desk, Il Giornale de Latin. I happen to know Italian, and I saw this newspaper that reported on the world in which art happens, that's how I describe it. It's 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 not it's not about art history, it's not about any branch of art, it's about anything that matters that has happened in that month or is going to happen in the following month, um, internationally in all branches of of art, from um classical antiquity through to uh sort of most contemporary art market, but it was not corrupt, it did not pay. For articles to be written about artists who happen to be advertising, you know, that sort of thing. And I thought, Eureka. And I um, asked around until I could find uh, the name of the person who did it, met him in Rome. Um, he then asked me to start a, a similar newspaper, different news, obviously, but for the English speaking world. And then shortly afterwards, I married him, which is why I'm Anna Summers Cox, but also Mrs. Umberto Alemandi, uh, Umberto Alemandi being the publisher.
1: Excellent, and uh, and then there, there. I think there's a Russian edition then developed, if I remember rightly, and I, I, yes yeah, sorry. sorry
0: there's, there's French. There's a French edition. Um, there's a Russian edition. There's a Chinese edition.
1: Exactly, and uh, no, I, I I I concur with you there. I, I I always tell my students, you know, this is an unusual investigative newspaper. You know, most newspapers today are just living off other people's work, and I, I know the, the art newspaper. I, I know a lot of the articles that appear in the newspaper often appear beforehand in the times or whatever um so it's just nice to read an investigative newspaper i think the only other one i can think of probably is the financial times uh you know particularly the weekend editions which is actually still an intelligent newspaper with a lot of investigation
0: yeah um i um i i I think a lot of investigative staff has moved online, and I have to say, ArtNet, our rival, is pretty good sometimes too. Sure. Uh, the, the field when we entered the field, art news hardly existed. In fact, didn't really exist at all, and we we created it, and now there are a lot of people trying to write it. But all all news 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 is is is. Um, um, softened up, shall we say, by the PR machine. Yes. It doesn't make any difference whether you're in the art world. I, you have to just resist, and that is the hardest thing to do because you are bombarded with it by the whole time. You have to sift out what is the real story behind the, the sort of schmoozy put bit that's put in front of it. And quite, a, it's, quite a, it's so easy to say, what a sale took place, and this fetched a record price. Boring, boring, boring. I'm, I said, you had, I'm not interested in record prices. Who remembers a record price? <laughs> uh, I mean, apart from the Salvatore Mundi by Leonardo da Vinci, possibly, or not, as the case might be. Uh, most people just you know expect arts prices to go up and and they never get told about the ones that don't sell and why they don't sell it's very interesting why things don't sell
1: Mm, absolutely about that as well no no definitely and um can you can you talk about maybe a highlight or some highlights of uh, of those years those early years maybe working as editor of the art newspaper any, any particular interviews or incidents that happened that really stand out in your memory?
0: I do remember a complete flap on because Francis Bacon died and um, it was quite pointless. Obviously, you were doing a monthly newspaper and you didn't have a website yet uh, to, um, to, to, to write an ordinary description of Francis Bacon and his career. And uh, because we were arranged international, we are picking up news from all over. We discovered that in France, he'd given his last interview in France. So we got hold of that and we translated it. Now that wasn't our piece of piece of news, but it, if we hadn't been international, we wouldn't have seen it. And and as a result, we published the last interview with Francis Bacon um, in English, and we were quite pleased with that. I liked it for um, the engagement. I mean, we were we espoused very early on the um, the criticism of the market in antiquities by but because it was quite clear that uh selling selling illegally dug up stuff was damaging to the kind of world's world's history. You know, every time you wreck a site, you lose the information. So we campaigned on that for a bit. And now I begin I will I would be inclined to campaign a little bit on the other in the other direction, say, listen, you you now that um you've uh international legislation and you you know uh UNESCO um, 1970 um, um convention has Basically killed the legitimate market for antiquities, but even though people are still digging things up. One should one should um, allow um, s- things which are, don't have a provenance, but which quite obviously haven't been dug up recently, to be sold even without it. Because what's been happened is there's now a large n- number of items which are unsalable because yeah. they simply can't prove that that, that um, a provenance from before 1970, which is absurd.
1: Yes, and even things like the Sev So Treasure, I would argue, using kind of ethical relativism, that it would be... in spite of the fact that it was very, very dodgy, it's it, it's illegal export um, and you know Peter Wilson at Sotheby's was involved and in Lord Northampton uh, they can't get rid of it, as you know, they can't get rid of it now, it, I remember going to the you probably went to it as well, the, they had a preview at Bonham's where they, they searched you you went in, you couldn't take a camera in or anything um, And uh, but that remains not on public display and it's such an important collection of objects that it should be on display, I don't know your Opinion on that, do you think it should be in a museum?
0: Um, with sort of um health warnings, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, I well, I think I probably do, but um, I can see why museums have adopted this attitude. But it, it, it as a friend of mine put it, they've become Taliban's, they've gone too far, yes. in 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 that direction, mm. uh. Uh, I, I think Hungary has actually bought a few pieces of it. Um and as we all know, Hungary uh, is is not politically correct at the moment. <laughs> and they're very nationalistic. And they did there on one of the pieces there is the Latin name for um Lake Balaton, which is the main lake in Hungary, uh, which is one of the reasons why they say that the treasuries might have come from what 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 is now Hungary. Um, anyway, the, the Hungarian government decided they were going to take a punt on it and they bought some of it.
1: Yes, I, I remember um, Christina Ruiz, you, you will know, um, she's one of the journalists on our newspaper, and she came and did a lecture for us on on the ethics of journalism, of art journalism. And you probably know what I'm going to say, the story she tells is when she did this investigation into, um, uh, what do they call the Tomboroli. Uh, in Rome, and she went with them and she had your legal experts sort of telling her that, you know, she mustn't touch anything and just observe um, a wonderful story. And I think it first I, I remember seeing that in the Sunday Times colour supplement before it appeared in the art newspaper. Um, and I remember... You know the region that you. One of the the, re, the region of uh, of uh, Tuscany, obviously, is where all of these many of these things, these Greek vases, are actually looted by these tomb robbers. And I, I remember being on a train when I was uh, researching. I I was up in Florence, but I was researching in the Bay of Naples, in Pompeii, and um, this there was. I was a young man then. This this young Italian girl got into you know they're all, they all separate compartments. They used to be with the corridor, and we got talking and. Um, uh, she, she said, "Oh, what do you do?" And I said, "Oh, I'm a classical archaeologist. I'm researching Pompeian painting." She said, "Oh, my boyfriend." And my heart sank. She was quite cute. <laughs> my boy, mm-hmm. my boyfriend uh, works in that field. I said, "Oh, what's he do?" She says, "He's a tomb <laughs> <laughs> I though so it's a good thing to be a tomb robber, you know. So we <laughs> spoke a little bit about that. <laughs>
0: Well, I, I mean, apart from, I mean, the fascination of actually, you know, being in on, as it were, a burglary. Um, it, it, what we discovered, which is it, is is so important to realise, is that what the amount of money that Tom Baroli themselves actually make is so small. Yes. Uh, and even the middlemen don't make that much. It's it's uh, then as it moves up. Up, up, the 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 the, the, the stairs, the, the steps of the market. It then becomes big business. So surely, surely, it would be better. Mm-hmm. As one um, Italian superintendent tried to, was to enlist the tombaroli to help you do digs, um, and and then you know teach, you know, rope them in as as archaeologists.
1: Yeah, I would, I would really agree with that. I've got an archaeologist friend, Neil Faulkner, um, and he um, he he actually against his other archaeological friends, he he really agreed with the portable antiquities scheme where, where you actually encourage, you know, he said he's done lectures for me where he he shows statistics where most metal detectors are not bad people, but you join them into clubs and they they meet once a month with archaeologists. And he said most of what they're digging up is actually destroyed anyway. It's in the kind of plough soil. And he says some of the research that's come out of that now, uh, they've, they've worked out the movement of Vikings over a, a, a large, proportion of like northern England, which just wouldn't have happened without that kind of research. So he said that, you know, the Nighthawks, as they're called, the, the, the really illegal um, people, um, are quite few and far between. And, and it's better, therefore, to bring this out in the open. So it sounds as though you're saying similar things that could happen in Italy with the Tombaroli.
0: Well, unfortunately not because the superintendent got um got wrapped over the knuckles for having done so and nobody has tried it since. Yeah. Uh I, no, they're still trying to hold back the waves, uh, you know, by 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 means of the laws. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Tomberoli carry on regardless.
1: Because there's just not enough policing of of, yeah. of, of art thefts and art crimes anyway. Um uh, Anna Anna, we've been in the pandemic, obviously, for the last couple of years. In your view, how has that changed the the art world and maybe the art market <laughs> you...
0: well uh, I, I i never quite know what how to answer questions about the art market because i i'm not quite sure really okay well you but but, but but i i'll say i'll say this um uh we talked earlier about sort of visual fatigue mm. um there is a risk that that it will downgrade um our the freshness of our of our vision of art. Mm-hmm. Um, I think things have to be to get the authentic experience um, may may become more precious. Uh, I mean, there are all kinds of wonderful things you can do. I mean, I adore the fact that um, with the Google Project, you can um, look up um, the details of an Islamic building in Damascus and go in and zoom in on the finest, finest detail in a capital. So you're literally looking at it like a connoisseur. but all this art that's made for the screen, I'm not sure I really believe in it um, <laughs> any more than computer games. I mean, it's fun. It's um, Well, it, it should be fun. Of course, it doesn't become fun when it becomes so much money. Um, then it becomes um, serious and, um, and, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm too old. I'm too old for it.
1: <laughs> I, I mean, we have these discussions all the time at the, at the Institute and with the students, and there, there, are, there are some of them who just love – the digital aesthetic and, and and most of them i'm pleased to say you know they get it but they 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 just want to be back in the bricks and mortar art world you know going into galleries and actually looking at objects and and, and so on um, and venice is obviously very important to you um can, can you talk about your earliest memories of visiting the city
0: Yes, I can. Um, um, my grandmother's house there, she was Welsh, but she studied in Paris in the 1890s and she copied Velasquez. And we had this um, small palazzo, absolutely full of all Velasquez's major paintings from the Prado. Very good. Um, the former director of the Prado said she was one of the best. So on the one hand, there was this great dark building full of these great dark paintings. And I thought, you know, I thought... Amazing. I, even as a child, I thought it was amazing. I thought Venice was like a great playground, have water everywhere, um, the squares you could, where you could just go out. There was no danger of cars. I still think it is a model of how one can live in a civilized way where you walk, um, where there's no alienation. Inevitably, you see, you know your neighbors, you see your neighbors. There's no chance of somebody um, dying in a a flat and not being found for three weeks because the neighbors would say, well, what's happened to old Signora Lucia? Um, I absolutely loved it from day one. And I, when the house was sold when I was 19, I, I, I vowed never to go back. And I haven't gone back, except when I've had to, when I've had some work to do. I've never gone there as a tourist. I then became, years later, the chairman of Venice in Peril and Fund. I succeeded John Julius Norwich at that. And I realized that the saving of Venice is a scientific issue. It's a scientific and decision-making issue. Um, restoration is fine but it's sticking plasters on 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 a very very ill person and the sea level rise that is being foretold by the intergovernmental panel on climate change's recent report in august is actually the death sentence for venice unless at cop 26 we get our act together and keep the temperature below 2 degrees and even at 2 degrees um, the, uh, there's going to be continuous rise in sea level, not only this century, but for centuries to come. Therefore, um, Venice needs to have a completely different approach to how it, it, it looks after itself. It's not something where you can invent something, pay a lot of money, build mobile barriers between the sea and, and the lagoon and say, right, we've done it. It's not that. It's going to require constant vigilance. And if it doesn't get it, Venice, honestly... We'll be falling to bits by the time um, we reach the end of the century.
1: Do, do you think there are parallels there with what we, the news we're hearing from COP26, that although they've made some uh, leeway, that it's just not going to be enough, according to many scientists. Do you think that that is also frustrating about, uh, you know, the, the discussions about Venice, that nothing ever really seems to be done. And maybe you could talk about the floods. You know, they they seem to use the the the, the flood barrier as a that kind of token thing that's going to save Venice. Maybe you could talk about that as well. There's
0: there's a there's a great misunderstanding about Venice flood protection because they can people confuse um intermittent flooding events, i.e., you know, a storm surge, water comes in, and sort of about 24 hours later it, you know, the whole thing subsides and goes out again. Um, that's like like sort of fever peaking um uh with somebody who's very very ill and so there's there's the um acute phase but the underlying illness is the rising um water level yes and it's already risen nearly 40 centimeters since 1897 when they started taking measurements if you you know the punta della logana which is where you know pinot has his um collection well near that there's a measuring point mm-hmm. and everything gets measured from 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 that which was established zero datum. so it's it's nearly 40 centimeters higher not all of it because of sea level rise some of it's because of about 13 centimeters is substance but all the rest is sea level rise now that is before global warming has really kicked in and um you know, it's expected to rise a minimum, a minimum of another forty centimeters by the middle of the century. Um, anyway, uh, it could be as much as a meter. I mean, the Dutch, who really know about flooding, they're planning for a minimum rise by the end of, centi- cent- of the century of forty centimeters. That is, if we all become very virtuous, and for a meter. And they also have a little team working on a two-meter scenario. So, this is a country that knows that they will die literally die um, if they don't get it right. Um, and we need to take it as seriously as as they do. Um, and what is it that moves us to do something? It is either love or fear. I hate to say that love of Venice has not been enough for, for the moment um, to get um, proper collaboration between the various authorities to do something. And the Italian government honestly feels that they have... Uh, they've done it with the mobile barriers, and unfortunately they haven't because the mobile barriers can't be kept permanently shut because the lagoon will turn into a stinking swamp. Mm. You have to have another system. Um, we don't know what it is yet. You know this is for the scientists to find out. So um, I belong to. Um, uh, I'm a fellow of. Um, I'll use its Italian name first. The Istituto. Uh, Veneto di Scienze Letta Arti, the Academy of of Sciences and Arts. And uh, we sent an appeal to the extremely good um, Italian prime minister, Mario Draghi, who's not an ordinary politician. He was head of the European Central Bank, uh, who is also a reforming prime minister. And to to say, please, will you actually do something about this? Something which will set up an authority equivalent to the the Dutch Delta programme, which will um, start planning the solution for for Venice, and then be able to implement it, and get it planning look far ahead, and also financed in a regular way, um, uh, so that it can actually be certain that it can carry on with its work. Uh, we haven't had an answer yet, but I know we'll get one because I know that reached him. Um, it was handed to him by his right hand man, mm-hmm. so we expect something. Um, and um, this is the way I think people are going to have to start thinking about. Um, well uh global warming in general, it's going to it's going to need big decisions by very powerful people. Uh, but also the roping in of business. Um uh, Mark Carney, um, the former uh head of the Bank of England, you know, and a genuine capitalist, of course, uh said, you know, climate change will be um finally be- begin to be mitigated when businesses realize that. That working towards it, producing um ecologically sound things is good business. So, so so it needn't be viewed as a sort of penitential thing, a, a taking away, um, but but something that actually adds.
1: I think businesses are now genuinely beginning to realize that uh, you know, that the when, when one reads, reads the financial news, uh, you hear a lot of business um, gurus now who are um yeah, who are very aware of that. We've got people like Elon Musk, the kind of maverick guy. But, you know, I think there's a lot of people out there who I, 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 I'm a glass half full person. What what With Venice, though, it, 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 I don't see that there is. It, do you think there's any hope for the future of Venice? Yes. Am I right in saying
0: I have to say yes, don't I? Yeah. Of course there is. Yes. Uh, you know, if, if you brought in the Dutch um, and some European Union funding and the Italians put some funding in, uh, and you had a well concerted plan, of course you could protect it. Yeah. I mean, what is going to be much, much harder is, is countries like Bangladesh. Um there that's a whole country that's that's at risk there. And I've heard people say to me, um, you know, the saving of Venice is a matter for the elite. Um, think about Bangladesh. Well, of course, I think about Bangladesh, but it's not either or. Uh, and and letting Venice uh, go to pot is not going to help the people in Bangladesh. So um, that we we shouldn't confuse these things in our mind.
1: No, but it's, I think it's very very good to make people aware that you know it's not just all the the the, the lovely cultural sites. Uh, uh, that 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 we visit, that we want to save. It's so that there, there are people in Madagascar and so on who are in, under real threat, as we've seen recently in the um, in the news. Um, so so well, let's keep our fingers crossed on that, Anna. And um, do you think is is it really linked to? It's totally linked the future of Venice to uh, global warming levels, um, or or has it has got has it got its own situation, or is it a kind of midst of its own situation and global warming?
0: Well, there are all the other aspects like the tourism, the flow of tourism, um, which should obviously be rationed. You know, um, I, I compare it to the, the early use of motor cars. When, when motor cars were invented, you bought a motor car, you put it on the road, and you drove it. There were no rules, you just drove it. And um, at a certain point, there were so many motor cars that people started crashing all over the place. So they said, OK, you know, now we'll have, um, you know, people drive on one side of the road, the other side, you have to learn how to drive it. And, and um, I'm afraid that tourism, with the number of people who want to go to particularly beautiful or particularly famous sites, uh, now so great the old laissez-faire attitudes can't continue. You're going to have to have a system of rationing. I think everybody should be able to give back to Venice, but you, you will have to book. You know, um, 600 people fit into a theatre, 601 people don't. Mm-hmm. That's um, and that, yeah, that, that's, that's one thing. Um, uh, but that is minor in a way. That just requires a decision. Uh, it can, can be done relatively easily if people didn't row so much about everything. Venice. The problem about Venice is that people row, and um, the other, the rest of Italy, tends to stand back and say, well, we don't want to get involved." Um, and that's been successive governments' attitudes.
1: Yeah, I mean, I uh, we we actually visit the biennale. Uh, you know, I've, I usually have about eighty students, and you know, we fly out there, and I'm already now with Coke Twenty Six, sort of talking to our trip. Organisers, about are there ways that we can kind of reduce this kind of you know? I mean, it's an ethical decision because I think it's good for the students to see what's going on there, and we always talk about you know the, the, the Venice in peril and, and all that, and they, they they like to see the Biennale. But uh, part of me begins to feel quite guilty <laughs> flying into Marco Polo, you know, with all these people. I don't know how you feel about that.
0: Well, that, you can go by train.
1: <laughs> yes, I mean the orange <laughs> would be a lovely idea. Perhaps we could. Basically.
0: It's much more expensive, but um I mean that 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 is the point. Uh, yeah. if things are rationed, we might will well cost, cost more.
1: Yeah, no, we might well do that in the future. So 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 Anna, um maybe we could just finish with you say talking about maybe what you're doing now, any kind of future plans. Uh, you have, and maybe a kind of day in the life of uh, Anna Summers Cox.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, I'm a retired lady. Um, I have Umberto Alemandi is, uh, is 83, he's in great shape, but I, um, I, 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 you know, he's an Italian husband, so I cook for him supper lunch, and lunch, and but um, he's very nice. And no, what I what I have a plan, uh, quite apart from trying to save Venice, uh, I, uh, being Catholic and being aware of how. Uh, religious buildings have lost their meanings, uh, and the guidebooks um, re- describe them as though they were basically um, bits of bits of rather good architecture, with, with which happen to be museums. I feel that this is completely um, misses a, a dimension of their existence. So, um, I, I want to produce a series of guides in whatever format—digital uh, or on paper or both—which will take you around a church and not only will talk about the art, but actually explain what it is, you know, what is an altar? Um, you know, what is, what is the Pentecost? What It's not just say, you know, this is a, this is a, a mosaic of the Pentecost. What, why did, why did they have a thing of the Pentecost? What does it all mean? Going back to what the Victorian Albert Museum did with the medieval and Renaissance galleries. I think we need to put the, 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 the spiritual back into art, which was not produced for art's sake. It was produced for, To the greater glory of God, and of course, the person who is paying the commission, you know, commissioning fee. But, um, but uh, 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 we are impoverishing things by turning everything into um, marketable commodities. Whether it's marketable as a tourist attraction or marketable as something that you sell.
1: Absolutely, I I take a small group of students around some of the churches in Venice, uh, uh, talking talking through an art business lens by looking at ones where we know about the contracts, etc. But uh, I remember like in San Zaccaria, I do get them to, to kneel in front of the altarpieces to get the right angle into the painting and uh, uh, and also to think about candlelight, original lighting. Uh, and, and, and I always say when you go back to the National Gallery and start looking at altarpieces, there, there trying to, you know, when no one's looking, do the same thing uh because you 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 just not get in the context of looking at these altarpieces just on a wall as a piece of art for art's sake so i i i really look forward to these publications whether they're online or in hard copy anna uh i think they would be wonderful and i think it's a tremendous project uh to have in the future um so thank you very much for uh, giving us your time today uh, and um, hope to see you at some point when we come back out to Italy as the pandemic gradually fades away hopefully.
0: Uh, thank you for asking me and do come to Turin it's a much much more interesting time oh. than people think it is.
1: Oh, well, one more thing. We we have been going to Torino for Artissima for many years. And over the last two years, we haven't, you know, it's just been on and we haven't been able to go. But I've been a big supporter of, of, of Artissima in Torino because I've always told the students that I think when we first started going there, uh, people reckon that, like, the Bologna Art Fair was more important. I think Artissima now has grown. and uh, But we see it as a great model of, uh, of an art fair that isn't just about money. Uh, it's always been, I think they've led the way in many ways in Torino with, like, making it more educational, uh, having the early the Emerging Artists Prize where they designed for the Espresso Cups. I, we, we've always really loved being there. And we stay in the Renzo Piano, uh, you know, old Fiat building. And uh, so they get a great sense of, of that lovely city. And, of course, all the wonderful Savoy old master galleries and the Egyptian gallery it's a really underrated place you know very few have yeah. go there they just mm-hmm. see it as a kind of industrial town so I'm I'm right on your side in terms of uh, a, lo- a love for Torino
0: excellent excellent well next time you will come out um, let me know and we'll we'll arrange something
1: well that would be great thank you very much Anna okay uh, enjoy Bye-bye. the rest of the day bye bye David bye bye